Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we visit the North Midlands, where we find the world's first skyscraper in Shropshire. Walk beside a lake dedicated to love in Staffordshire. Admire the trees of the world's best-known forest in Nottinghamshire. Discover a Derbyshire village that died so others might live. And stroll through the world's first public park. Stop 1. Ditherington Flax Mill, Shropshire Shrewsbury, or Shrewsbury. Now let's have that argument some other time. Shrewsbury is one of England's loveliest old towns. Hilly, cobbled streets of Tudor-timbered black and white, and Georgian pink brick, all set in a sweeping loop of the River Severn. A quiet, polite, dignified sort of place, quite happy to leave the world alone, if the world leaves Shrewsbury alone. Or is it? For actually, Shrewsbury has spectacularly gone out into the world and reshaped it, twice. As the birthplace in 1809 of Charles Darwin, who changed the way mankind understands the origins of mankind, and as the birthplace in 1797 of the Skyscraper, a building which changed the skylines of the world forever. We will come across Charles Darwin many times in this series, for he was undoubtedly one of the most influential figures in human history. But for now, we're going to concentrate on the world's first skyscraper, Ditherington Flax Mill, or, as it is now called, Shrewsbury Flax Mill. It has been described as the most important building of the modern age, the first to be built around an iron frame, and as such, the grandfather of all skyscrapers. Now, while it might seem at first surprising that the unassuming Shrewsbury should be the home of such a significant building, when you drill down into the facts, it makes sense. Shrewsbury is only about 15 miles upstream on the River Severn from Colebrookdale, where the Abraham Darbys, 1 to 3, had spent much of the 18th century developing revolutionary new ways of producing high-grade iron, resulting in 1779 in the world's first iron bridge, 
built across the Severn Gorge to demonstrate the amazing structural possibilities of iron. The architect of the Shrewsbury Mill, Charles Bage, was looking for that holy grail sought by all 18th century mill owners, a mill that was fire resistant. Most mills, indeed all mills at that time, were timber framed, and with flax dust being highly flammable, the risk of fire, particularly in a textile mill, was ever present. So Bage decided to try out the new technology the Derbys had recently made possible on his own doorstep, and built his mill around an iron frame. As well as making the structure more fire resistant, the iron frame was stronger and lighter, and created more space by doing away with the need for multiple thick timber beams and pillars. It seems so simple, and yet this trailblazing iron frame design, pioneered here in Shrewsbury, redesigned the cities of the world. It was used almost a century later to rebuild Chicago after the fire of 1871. It produced the iconic New York skyline, made possible some of the world's greatest buildings, from the Empire State to the tallest building in the world, Dubai's Burj Khalifa, and it is still the preferred method of constructing skyscrapers all over the world. The Shrewsbury Flax Mill, the world's first skyscraper, is now being restored and made safe to visit. It is an awe-inspiring place, especially for those like me who love skyscrapers, and always head for the observation deck of the tallest building available when visiting anywhere new. Next time I do, I shall tip my cap to the Abraham Darby's and Charles Bage, and to Shrewsbury. They made it all possible. Stop 2. Rudyard Lake, Staffordshire. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. Sound advice for anyone, I should say. In fact, we owe these wise words to a lake in North Staffordshire so beautiful that it stirred art teacher John Lockwood Kipling to propose to his love, Alice MacDonald, as they walked along its leafy banks in 1863. Alice said yes, and when their son was born in India two years later, they christened him Rudyard, in memory of the happy times they had known at Rudyard Lake. And the boy grew up to be Rudyard Kipling, one of the most popular writers of the early 20th century, the first writer in the English language to win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1907, and the author of those inspiring words. Rudyard Lake is actually a reservoir, and was constructed in 1797 by the engineer John Rennie to feed the Caldon branch of the Trent and Mersey Canal using water from the River Dane. Two and a half miles long and about a quarter of a mile wide, the lake sits in a steep wooded valley in the picturesque Staffordshire Moorlands on the edge of the Peak District. And when the North Staffordshire Railway opened up in 1845, Rudyard became a popular destination for day-trippers, particularly from the six towns of Stoke-on-Trent, ten miles away to the south. Known as the Blackpool of the Potteries, or the Geneva of England, the lake attracted up to 20,000 visitors a day, 
who came to fish, to go boating or to just walk. There were tea rooms, concerts, entertainers such as tightrope walkers and even swimming lessons from Captain Matthew Webb, who in 1875 had become the first man to swim the English Channel. Today, the North Staffordshire Railway has been replaced by the Rudyard Lake Narrow Gauge Steam Railway, which runs steam trains along the eastern side of the lake, and Rudyard still receives half a million visitors a year. I wonder how many of them propose there. Incidentally, the name Rudyard means enclosure where rue is grown, rue being a medicinal evergreen shrub. Local legend has it that it was a man from Rudyard, one Ralph de Rudyard, who killed Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth. Hmm. John Lockwood Kipling's future wife, Alice MacDonald, was the eldest of the four remarkable daughters of a Methodist minister, the Reverend George MacDonald of Wolverhampton, and his wife, Hannah. The four MacDonald girls were celebrated in the 19th century for all making notable marriages. Alice, as we know, married John Lockwood Kipling and was mother to Rudyard Kipling. The diplomat Lord Dufferin said of Alice... Dullness and Mrs. Kipling cannot exist in the same room. Georgiana MacDonald married the pre-Raphaelite painter Edward Byrne-Jones, a founder with William Morris of the Arts and Crafts movement and renowned for his stained glass artwork in particular. When Byrne-Jones had an affair with his Greek muse Mariah Zambuco, which ended with Mariah trying to drown herself in the Regent's Canal, Georgiana became very close to William Morris, whose wife Jane was at the time having an affair with Dante Gabriel Rossetti. But in the end, Georgiana and Edward Byrne-Jones stayed together for 30 years, as did the Morrises. Agnes MacDonald, a famous beauty, married the painter Edward Poynter, who, in 1896, became president of the Royal Academy. They were married in St Peter's Church in Wolverhampton in 1866, in a double ceremony with the fourth MacDonald girl, Louisa, who was marrying wealthy ironmaster Alfred Baldwin. The following year, Louisa gave birth to a son, Stanley, who would go on to be three times Conservative Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. During his time in office, Stanley had to deal with the general strike in 1926. He helped to found the British Commonwealth and presided over the abdication crisis in 1935. He no doubt took his cousin Rudyard's sound advice. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. Stop 3. Sherwood Forest, Nottinghamshire Robin Hood in Sherwood stood. The Lincoln Cathedral Manuscript of 1420 tells us. And certainly the spirit of Robin Hood lives on in Sherwood Forest, the Shire Wood of Nottingham an ancient forest that once covered a quarter of the county. 
today, although much reduced in size, Sherwood Forest, a thousand oaks set in a thousand acres, is still a wonderful place to roam and indeed hide, should the need arise. A great way to explore Sherwood Forest is to visit some of the sites associated with Robin Hood. Like the forest, Robin Hood, the most famous English folk hero of them all, has been around for a long time. Indeed, we first hear of him in Piers Plowman, the poem written by the wandering Worcestershire poet William Langland in 1377, in which Sloth, a drunken clergyman, chides himself for knowing the rhymes of Robin Hood better than the Lord's Prayer. No one knows Robin Hood's true origins, but man or myth we do know that he robs the rich to give to the poor, a noble calling of which we all approve, and in sharp contradistinction to the modern banker, who it seems to me does exactly the opposite. Wielding his trusty longbow, Robin Hood battles an evil Norman king, King John, and defends downtrodden English folk from tyrannical French aristocrats, like his rival for the love of Maid Marian, Guy de Gisborne, his exploits reflecting the struggles against arbitrary authority that were the background to medieval England. Here are all the elements a good story requires. There is loyalty and companionship in his band of merry men, much the miller's son, roguish Will Scarlet, Alan Adale the wandering minstrel, and of course the giant Little John. There is humour in the jovial church militant Friar Tuck. There is love and fire with the strong and passionate Maid Marian. And the baddies, led by the dastardly Sheriff of Nottingham, are not even slightly nuanced but refreshingly and irredeemably bad. Splendid stuff. A good place to start a tour of Sherwood Forest is the Major Oak, Robin Hood's main hideout deep in the forest a mile north of Edwinstow. Named after the antiquary Major Heyman Rook, who wrote about it in 1790, the major oak is one of the oldest and biggest oak trees in England and stands in its own clearing, with smaller oaks and silver birch keeping a respectful distance. Robin Hood and his merry men hid in the oak's vast 30-foot round hollow trunk, reliving their exploits and plotting their next ambush. The oak has long been a symbol of England, our national tree, Charles II hid in an oak tree, giving us the pub name the Royal Oak. English battleships made of oak were known as oak fortresses, and English sailors had hearts of oak, according to the actor David Garrick. So Robin Hood having an oak tree for his fortress is somehow fitting. Next to St Mary's Church in the pretty village of Edwinstow, a 15-minute walk south through the forest. Here, in a church built by King John's father Henry II as a penance for the murder of Thomas Becket, Robin Hood and Maid Marian were married by Friar Tuck.
Edwinstow is named after the Saxon king, Edwin of Northumbria, whose kingdom stretched from the River Trent in the south to Edwin's Borough or Edinburgh in the north. Having been converted to Christianity by his wife, Princess Ethelberga of Kent, Edwin marched south in 633 to fight the pagan king Penda of Mercia, and was killed here in Sherwood Forest during the ensuing Battle of Hatfield Chase. His body was secretly buried in a clearing to conceal it from Penda, and when it was safe for Edwin's followers to return and take Edwin to his final resting place at Whitby Abbey, they raised a wooden chapel over where he had lain, Edwin's Holy Place, or Edwinstow. Henry II replaced the chapel with the Stone Church in 1175. Incidentally, buried in St Mary's churchyard, to the west of the tower, is a distinguished former incumbent, the Reverend Dr Ebenezer Cobham Brewer, author of the incomparable Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. Ten minute drive south from Edwinstow is the hilltop village of Blidworth, with fine views to Newark and Lincoln and Beaver Castle. Maid Marian lived here, and it was from here that Will Scarlet accompanied her to Edwinstow for her marriage to Robin Hood. Will Scarlet himself is said to be buried in the churchyard at Blidworth, his grave near the churchyard gate marked by old bits of stone off the church. Nearby, across the fields in Harlow Wood, by Robin Hood Way, is Fountain Dale, where a natural spring or fountain bubbles to the surface near a moated island, on which the remains of a 12th century hunting lodge lie hidden beneath mud and undergrowth. The spring is known as Friar Tuck's Well, for this is said to be the home of the belligerent friar, sent here to protect the spring as a penance for his rebellious nature. Robin Hood challenges Tuck to carry him on his back across the stream, but halfway over, Tuck dumps Robin in the water, and a fight ensues, by the end of which they've become firm friends. The story is merry, but Fountain Dale not so much, a moat of still black water, deep in damp, dripping, misty trees, mysterious, remote and spookily quiet. The American writer Washington Irving, a keen follower of the Robin Hood legends, came to stay at Fountain Dale House, set in a clearing on the edge of the moat, and was moved by the eerie atmosphere to write his gothic tale, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. There are indeed spirits aplenty, murmuring amongst the dark oaks of Sherwood Forest. Stop 4. Eam, Derbyshire. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague was stayed. These words are inscribed on a stone in the churchyard at Eam, in 
memory of Thomas Stanley, rector from 1660 to 1664, of this handsome stone village surrounded by moorland heights in Derbyshire's Peak District. Stanley was a non-conformist minister, a Puritan, who refused to sign the 1662 Act of Uniformity introduced by Charles II and mandating the use of the Book of Common Prayer in services, and he was consequently removed as rector of Eam and replaced by a clergyman from the Unified Anglican Church, William Mumperson. The religious divide between the two men was deep, but they buried their differences and came together to lead and inspire the people of Eam against a foe that brought terror, hardship and appalling loss to the village, the Great Plague. The bubonic plague arrived in Eam in September 1665 in a bundle of cloth sent to the local tailor from London, then in the last throes of its own great plague. The tailor's innocent assistant George Vickers, who was visiting Eam to help make costumes for a religious festival, opened the bale and hung the cloth in front of the fire to dry, so releasing the disease-ridden fleas into the air and sentencing himself to an agonising and painful death, the first victim of the plague in Eam. He was dead within a week. The plague swept through the tailor's household and out into the village, and by December 42 villagers were dead. The disease abated in the cold of winter, but burst out again with even greater savagery in the spring of 1666 and eventually Rector William Mumperson decided it was his duty to prevent the plague from spreading to the densely populated nearby towns of Sheffield and Bakewell. Eam must be quarantined. To help persuade the villagers to make such a sacrifice, Mumperson approached previous Rector Stanley, who still lived in the village where he had been so popular. On the 24th of June 1666, Mumperson and Stanley, standing side by side in the village square, told the parishioners that for the sake of the other communities around them, Eam must isolate itself from the outside world. Nobody could come in and nobody could leave. The villagers were effectively being asked to condemn themselves to almost certain death. And with a quiet heroism, they did. The Earl of Devonshire, whose Chatsworth estate was nearby, and others, agreed to leave food supplies at various boundary stones around the village, in exchange for money disinfected by being soaked in vinegar or left in running streams. In an attempt to prevent the disease spreading within the village, families were urged to stay in their own homes and not mix with others and were forced to bury their own dead in unconsecrated ground away from the churchyard. Church services were held in the open air at Cooklet Delf, a picturesque rock above the village with a natural arch which Mumberson and Stanley could use as a pulpit. The summer of 1666 turned out to be unusually hot, 
which only increased the virulence and spread of the disease, until almost every family in the village was affected, some families wiped out entirely. Many of the stories are heartbreaking. In happier times before the plague, Cooklet Delph was the secret rendezvous of sweethearts, a village lass called Emmet Siddle and Roland Tor, a young man from a neighbouring village. When Emmet stopped coming, Roland continued to go to their meeting place, calling across the rocks to his love in the vain hope that she would one day reply. She never did. And when the plague was over and he could go into Eme, he learned that she had died in April, along with five other members of her family. Over the course of eight terrible days in August, Elizabeth Hancock of Riley House Farm had to bury her husband and six of her children by herself in a field next to the farmhouse. Marshall Howe, charged with burying those who had no family left, ended up burying his own two-year-old son, William, and his wife, Joan. As Mumpson wrote, There is sadness and death in the air. On 22nd of August, he went walking in the hills with his wife, Catherine, who remarked on the sweetness of the air away from the village. She died next day, aged just 27. Two hundred and fifty-nine people died in Eme that summer of 1666. By November, the disease was gone. The quarantine and the courage of the villagers had worked. The plague contained within Eme. Since 1866, the villagers of Eme have held a remembrance service at Cooklet Delph every year on the last Sunday in August, Plague Sunday, to commemorate the courage and sacrifice of those brave villagers 350 years ago. All around the village there are memories of that tragic time. Catherine Mumpson's tomb is prominent in the churchyard. The Riley graves, where Elizabeth Hancock's family lie, are enclosed in a stone wall to the east of the village. Mumpson's Well, above the village, is one of the places where the villagers left money for food and supplies. Instead of unbearable sorrow, Cooklet Delph is now full of flowers and birdsong. Just occasionally, when the breeze whispers and the birds fall silent, the haunting voice of a young man calling to his love can be heard echoing across the Derbyshire peaks.
Stop 5. Birkenhead Park, the Wirral, Cheshire. May the beauty of nature refresh and restore you in body, mind and spirit. These words, inscribed on a plaque attached to a bench in New York Central Park, perfectly encapsulate the philosophy behind the creation of urban parks. They are the lungs of a city, a place to breathe and pause, to retreat from the noise and pollution and bustle of city life. For, as the Welsh poet William Henry Davis said, What is this life if full of care we have no time to stand and stare? The first public park in America, Central Park is undoubtedly the most famous urban park in the world, having appeared in more films than any other location on Earth. And it has influenced the design of urban parks across America and around the world. But Central Park was itself inspired by a small, beautifully landscaped but largely forgotten 225-acre patch of green on the edge of what is today the post-industrial town of Birkenhead on the Wirral in Cheshire. Birkenhead Park is the park to which all other urban parks across the world owe their existence, for Birkenhead Park is the first publicly funded park in the world. It was all the idea of a local industrialist, Sir William Jackson, who was amongst the first to recognise the need for health-giving green spaces to be created in the rapidly expanding industrial towns of the 19th century. Birkenhead, for instance, in 1821, had a population of 200. Thirty years later, in 1851, it was 25,000. As the Liverpool Courier put it in 1842, Bricks and mortar are so fast taking the place of green fields, and sooty vapours are so thickly mingling with the fragrant breezes, the Birkenhead will soon no longer be in the country. It is therefore good policy to provide a healthy and agreeable place of resort to secure the permanent benefits of pure air and exercise. And so it was that the Birkenhead Improvement Committee hired one of the most highly regarded landscape architects of the day to bring their vision to life. Joseph Paxton, then head gardener at Chatsworth, the Duke of Devonshire's estate in Derbyshire, who would later design the Crystal Palace in London's Hyde Park for the Great Exhibition of 1851. Paxton decided to lay out the park in the style of the great 18th century garden artists such as Capability Brown, as a country landscape with woodlands, hills, open meadows, shrubberies and lakes. To create interesting vistas, he added a variety of architectural features, lodges, pavilions, a Roman boathouse, the Swiss Bridge, the only traditional wooden-covered bridge in Britain and a classical grand entrance, with three arches flanked by lodges either side. The park was encircled by a carriage drive, and to help fund the whole venture, plots on the edge of the park were sold off to developers to build grand villas on. 10,000 people attended the official opening of the park by Lord Morpeth at the grand entrance on Monday 5th of April 1847 the same day that the Morpeth Docks were opened in Birkenhead. 
Three years later, in the summer of 1850, the American landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted arrived in Liverpool by ship, keen to visit this new people's garden he had heard about. He was impressed. Five minutes of admiration and a few more spent studying the manner in which art had been employed to obtain from nature so much beauty, and I was ready to admit that in democratic America there was nothing to be thought of as comparable with this people's garden. I cannot undertake to describe the effect of so much taste and skill as had evidently been employed. I will only tell you that we passed by winding paths over acres and acres with a constant varying surface, where on all sides were growing every variety of shrubs and flowers with more than natural grace, all set in borders of greenest, closest turf, and all kept with consummate neatness. And so did Frederick Law Olmsted sail home from Birkenhead Park to New York, filled with inspiration, enthusiasm and ideas, and set about creating the world's best-known urban park and most popular film set, Central Park, which opened to great acclaim nine years later in 1859. As for Birkenhead Park, for 173 years it has provided an oasis of beauty and respite for the people of Birkenhead and after an extensive renovation scheme in 2004, it remains a national treasure and an example for the world. Well, that concludes our tour of the North Midlands. In the next episode we visit the north of England, taking in the only mainland community in Britain to be cut off by the daily tides in Lancashire, a lakeland castle where everything was yellow, the Georgian port in Cumberland that inspired New York, the oldest railway bridge in the world in County Durham, and the home in Northumberland of one of England's greatest heroines. This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne, with guest star Rupert Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sINeverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books online and at all good bookshops. My thanks to Rupert, to my executive producer Jeremy Conrad, and to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. Music